Welcome. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Revolution and Ideology program. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the history of Labor Day and sort of how it was originally founded, the historical context with which uh, it originated, and then how it has changed over time and what it really means. I think that Today, we often associate Labor Day with like barbecues and like shopping maybe or something and like some weird kind of like bastardization of like patriotism, which we will get to why that's a thing. Um, but before we get started, do you have anything that you wanted to add? I'm super interested. I'm super interested to learn about Labor Day. Uh, usually I'm the history guy. That's what I teach and that's what I studied. Um, but in this case, I'm going to follow Nick's lead as our sociologist. This is definitely more in his wheelhouse. And um, I, I'm kind of... I feel guilty admitting this, but like of all the kind of various uh, issues that I like to uncover in history, the history of labor is just aside from, you know, the little mill girls and maybe what happened on plantations has never really been like my wheelhouse. So I think it's going to be super interesting to explore like the more traditional history of labor exploitation, especially during the industrial era and, and how we came up with this holiday and, and how this holiday is kind of, well, I think Nick's going to teach us a little bit of a farce. So yeah. So let's go back in time. We have to sort of let's talk about history for, I mean, the whole thing's going to be history, but let's talk about the historical context, I think, for when Labor Day comes into being. And we have to go back to the 19th century, the 1800s in the United States. And it's kind of interesting because I think for Jared and I, we both are incredibly bored talking about the 1800s normally. But if you're talking about labor history, you absolutely cannot ignore the 1800s. Uh, and it's just so significant for labor. So let's sort of put ourselves in what life is like in the 1800s uh, throughout the whole century, basically, and like how this changes. This century is when we see a huge transition from being an agriculture-based society to full-blown in industry. I mean, we go, the Industrial Revolution takes place in the United States in this century, and we go from being, like I said, purely agriculture uh, for the most part to being just dominated by, we, by the time we get to 1900, just dominated by industry in so many ways. So many changes happen in American society as a result. I mean, just massive things from like, I, I teach about the Industrial Revolution in my sociology courses, and we talk about how just family life, as an example, completely was just revolutionized from you went from like working on your local farm with your family all the time and being together as a unit to like, by the time we get to a certain stage in the industrial revolution, literally everyone is working in the factory from the mom to the dad, to the kids, right. everyone is sort of dispersing throughout the day and going to work independently. So you wouldn't see your family really at all. I tell my students, it's kind of depressing that that's basically the model we have now where everyone goes off to their separate things during the day and you see each other for a little bit at night if you're lucky and maybe a tiny bit in the morning, but that's it. And that's such a change from what it was like before we had right. industrialization. We have a couple of episodes that were like prior that kind of talk about the transition of this period. You know, we teach the 1800s through the lens of like indigenous uh, peoples or uh, slaves that are freeing themselves or or women. We definitely have, love the 1800s for that purpose, but we don't necessarily really dig into like heavy, like the traditional whitewashed version of the 1800s that most of us got in the K through 12 system. That said, if you want a little more depth on like the transition from like that more Jeffersonian agrarianism to this industrial era, the Tecumseh episode, the rugged individualism episode, and the Lowell Mill Girls episodes all kind of talk about like that slow transition that Nick's, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and like obviously resistance to that transition that Nick's kind of digging into. So I just kind of want to shout out those three episodes because I, I think they're pretty good at talking about the transition through the lens of, of women, indigenous people, um, and and then of course when we look at William Grimes, David Walker, and Nat Turner, uh, slaves that either freed themselves or in the case of David Walker, advocated for abolition. So like, but but within that context, we have to talk about the industrialism, and that's I think they give you a little bit of context. Yeah, no, for sure, that's a good point. So two big things that I want to just focus on um, is child labor during this period. Um, I don't know if I need to explain that to our listeners, but children did labor in the factories during the Industrial Revolution. It's kind of a weird thing that they were actually really, really good at working on the machines and cleaning and repairing them because their tiny little hands could fit in the places where, like, adults' hands couldn't go. It's a weird thing, but, like, that's what happened as a result of the Industrial Revolution before there was compulsory education in the public schooling system that we obviously exist now. Like, clearly, it's illegal for children to work in factories in the United States because they need to be in school. But there was a long time in the United States when that was not the case. And children were working in factories, in mines, in like, so on. Uh, this is important because this is one of the things that the labor unions will fight uh, to end, uh, which is interesting. But we'll get to that in a few seconds. Um, also, we have to understand the just the, I mean, raw number of hours that workers worked during the Industrial Revolution. Um, in the beginning, in the 1800s, roughly the average sort of manufacturer worked about 70 hours a week. They were working 10 to 12 hour days, 10 to 14 hour days, seven days a week. This is a huge point because, again, this is what the labor unions will start to fight against, reducing working hours, working days in the week and working hours per day and so on. We'll get to that again uh, in a few minutes as well. The other thing that I really want to focus on is how precarious the livelihoods of the workers was at this point. We take this for granted even today, even though workers' lives are still precarious today. But at the time, the factory owners, if there was a recession or their products weren't selling or some like economic downturn, they would just straight reduce people's wages. So if you're making X dollars per hour working in this factory, if business wasn't going well for the factory owner, they would just reduce your wages. This becomes a huge problem when we, t- when we uh, get to company towns, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So understand that even if you're, because I think the common narrative is like the Industrial Revolution, like uh, rising tide raises all boats and the standard of living increased and like all this. But for the worker, that was not true. It made their lives exponentially more precarious, to use the word that Nick used. Like it made labor exploitation, um, it, it, it accelerated it, for lack of a better term, like Labor exploitation goes all the way back. Nick and I would probably both argue to like the Neolithic or agriculture revolution. That's mm-hmm. that, it, it's got thousands of years of history there. But just like anything in industry, uh, with the industrial revolution, it accelerates everything and exacerbates the problem and then makes that problem more widespread among a larger population offering much less opportunity uh, for people to find some sort of escape from what Max Weber called like the Iron Cage, which we've already had an episode on, on on Weber and the Iron Cage. But regardless, that's what makes this kind of exploitation so much more... It's not just dangerous because literally the tools are more dangerous. They are. Don't get, a, a factory is exponentially more dangerous than, than working out in, in a field or, or uh, whatever, you know, rounding up cattle, whatever you might have been doing before. But it's also just such, so much more dangerous because of the speed and the pace and like the situation you find yourselves in. And, you know, you now are, and we talked about this in the Little Mill Girls episode, exponentially less independent than you used to be. You actually, because you're now being educated in an industrial era, you don't have the skills to just leave and go dig a well and hunt for your food and build a shelter. You're now dependent upon the industrial system. So the, the industrial system can, of course, food and 
clothe and give you water and all those things that you need. And it kind kind of becomes this vicious cycle. And and I think that's why a lot of people don't understand. Like a lot of these workers, they're stuck. They're stuck because A, they don't have the skills to just go off and do their own thing in the Wild West. Or B, they don't have the resources to do it either because they've been dependent on the industrial system. So, I think your point of dependency is really, really key. This is when the average American becomes dependent on the system itself and dependent on their role and others to provide them with jobs and like so on. Like you said, people often say, well, if the workers weren't happy, why did they just go do something else? Like this becomes, this is the point in American history when like going to do something else isn't, there's, that's not an option. But that's now. Like, why, yeah. you don't want to sit in a cubicle all day? Why don't you just go find, go back to college and go do something yep. else? Well, college now costs thousands of dollars, whereas two generations ago, it didn't. Why don't you just go leave the country? Because now I need so many different documents to leave the country, and it's yeah. very difficult. Not everybody can have, can afford airfare and all these other things. Like it's that's the dependency we're talking about. Like it's easy to say it, mm-hmm. but you get locked in. Yep. And 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 yeah, I, I would say you might we might be more locked in now than the industrial age, but that's a debate for a different. different oh no, episode. I wouldn't dis- Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah. But this is the point in American history when all Americans become locked in. Prior to this, like. If you were a farmer out in whatever, eastern Massachusetts, western Massachusetts, and you didn't like what was going on in the city, you didn't have to go there. You could survive on your own out there with the other farmers and like do your own thing. Or even if you were out on the quote-unquote frontier, like you're surviving basically independently from the system. But now if you're working in a factory in a city, after not very long, you've lost all those skills. And definitely after a generation, like it's over. You're dependent on the system and you have no option but to like leave. Right. Yeah, it, it, yeah. just think of it this way. In, in 1875, just a year I picked out of the top of my head, it might still be easier just to maybe, again, like ride a horse or find your way across the border into like British Canada or or newly independent Mexico. And even though they're probably not crazy about your presence, there's no like massive police state. There's not cameras everywhere. You can kind of just hang out and get away. Th- those are not options anymore. Those th- Those types of things are not options anymore, so... So as a result of this, this condition of the laborer, uh, it's no surprise that we start to see efforts on by the laborers themselves to sort of fight against this oppression and the system that they now are trapped into, that they're fully dependent upon. And we see the birth of labor unions, worker solidarity. Uh, I guess unions come a little later, like formal big unions like we are familiar with. We'll talk about those in a few minutes. But at first, it's just workers having solidarity with one another in one factory or in one profession and fighting against exploitation. I mean, we need to call it what it is. It's exploitation. They're, they're, working, they're working to death, right? So this starts to happen in the beginning of the 1800s as the Industrial Revolution. I mean, really, the story is as worker solidarity and worker strikes and worker efforts against exploitation are growing alongside the Industrial Revolution. It's not as if uh, the Industrial Revolution happens and then 50 years later there's a strike. Like, it's happening all the time. But this is a history that we often overlook. And when we're getting the K-12 through like story, you don't get this at all. You might, if you're lucky, get like a Haymarket massacre or something, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But even then, I don't remember learning about any of that type of thing like when I was going through K-12. Yeah, through I, I got the celebratory Gilded Age, and we're sitting yes, here exactly. like celebrating these jokers like Carnegie and Rockefeller mm-hmm. and Gould and Morgan. Like It was absolutely disgusting now that I look back on my education, that's, but that's what we got. right? But Labor Day plays an important role in this narrative, both in us sitting here telling this story and the government's effort to shift the narrative away from the efforts of labor, which we'll talk about. But we need to understand something. 
these efforts on the behalf of labor were radical and militant. It's not as if, I mean, not all of them were, but in general, sort of the sentiment of labor fighting against their exploitation and oppression in the 19th century was we would definitely consider that to be radical today, the actions that they were taking. They were sometimes violent. They were definitely willing to put their lives on the line. And we're going to talk about two examples here in just a second. But we need to understand that sort of this is the social milieu that Labor Day comes into being within, is these radical labor efforts and movements and solidarity to fight against the exploitation that they have no choice but to participate in in order to survive. Um, so let's talk about the first Labor Day, because interestingly, the history of Labor Day doesn't begin with the first one. Um, it doesn't end with the first one. It might. Uh, it begins with exploitation of the Industrial Revolution, and uh, it ends with something else, which we'll get to. And it has ended. It's still going on. We still celebrate Labor Day, but for it's just become sort of this like twisted, weird thing. We'll talk about that in a second. But the first Labor Day. Let's talk about that. It happens in New York City in 1882 on Tuesday, September 5th. Interesting. Um, under the direction of the Central Labor Union. Uh, so the Central Labor Union was a, it was actually a union of unions. Um, so there were smaller unions based on different craft. Union of unions. And, uh, Soviet? Yeah, exactly. A bunch of Soviets. <laughs> I mean, you joke, but like seriously, no, people yeah. freak out when they hear that in a post like McCarthy era. But yes, like socialism was a very like real like belief system for a lot of the American population before, before the back-to-back -back world wars. And no, and yeah. honestly, Labor Day plays a role yeah. in that, yeah. like yeah. the Red Scare and so on. We'll yeah. get to that in a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So the Central Labor Union comes up with this idea. I'm intentionally not talking about the person that gets credited with this because that itself is controversial. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. So the Central, a person in the Central Labor Union comes up with the idea to create uh, a day that would be focused on labor. And this is exactly what he says. This is a quote. It would be a street parade to exhibit to the public the strength and the spirit of the corps, core of the trade and labor organizations, followed by a festival for the recreation and amusement of the workers and their families. So it's a parade and then a festival with amusement. Um, so on September 5th, 1882, in New York City, the first one happens. 10,000 workers from various professions mark, march in the parade and then it ends at a park and they all take uh, take part in sort of it's, it's a massive picnic is what it is and there's speeches from different speakers um interesting there's coverage from like new york city newspapers i read a few articles from that event that happened in 1882 honestly they march there's a a picnic at the park uh, where they listen to speakers and they drink beer and etc so that's the very first labor day in 1882 and it starts to pick up steam uh from there Interestingly, one thing I definitely want to point out that most people I'm sure definitely don't know, most people probably don't know about the first Labor Day at all anyways, but they had to go on strike in order to participate in the first Labor Day because it clearly they didn't have the day off work. So all of these 10,000 workers that on a Tuesday took part in this parade, they went on strike to do so. They went on strike from their jobs and they left and they went and participated in this uh, parade. So that's important. The very first Labor Day was a strike. Um, it just goes to show like how much we're not taught about this kind of history and sort of the importance of a labor strike and like what happens and like all these things. So that's one thing. Um, that was the first Labor Day. Like I said, it starts to pick up legs a little bit uh, throughout the years and it gets celebrated in some other cities. Um, but then we really want to fast forward to the next big moment in the history of labor struggles in the United States, arguably the biggest, uh, maybe the Pullman strike 
And this, what we're going to talk about now is the Haymarket Massacre. These two events are like landmark events in the history of the labor struggle in the United States. Um, and like I said, probably not taught at all that I'm aware of it in K through 12. You might get a glancing of the Haymarket Massacre. Um, I, I don't know if the Pullman strike is taught at all. But anyways, let's talk about the Haymarket Massacre. We're going to do like a 60 second version of this. It deserves its whole own episode and it will get some at some point in the future. But I just want to talk about its importance in Labor Day, because that's what we're talking about. Um, so laborers had decided that May 1st was going to be the day that they struck to get the eight hour workday approved by employers. So I just want to stress these workers in 1886 are fighting for an eight hour workday, which was a reduction from the 10 to 14 hour workdays that they were used to. So they were trying to get legislation passed so to approve an eight hour workday. So they only had to work eight hours a day. I want to stress for everyone that works an eight hour day today because it's legislated that comes from the militant labor struggles of the 19th century and these laborers willing to strike and walk out of from their jobs to earn this eight hour workday that we all absolutely take for granted. socialists. I mean, yeah, this is exactly like that. Yep. That's, that's why you have an eight hour day rather than a 10 to 14 hour day. Not just them. Of course, we just recently did an episode on the Lowell Mill girls. And mm -hmm. in the 1840s, they were also doing the same and they got theirs down to 10 hours. So that, that, that right. was just one step along the way. But yeah. So these are workers in Chicago specifically. Chicago is a hotbed of labor activity in the 19th century. I mean, it still is to this day. Um, so they decide they're going to march on May 1st, 1886, and they do, and it's successful. But that's not when the massacre happens. The massacre happens a few days later on May 4th. So there's all these activities around these labor struggles at the time. So they have their massive march on the 1st and other activities. They all gather outside of the fa factory in Haymarket Square in Chicago, and they are still protesting for that eight-hour workday. People are giving speeches and so on. Um, there are thousands of people there, and the police show up. This is interesting because I want to stress it was just a peaceful gathering of a few thousand workers talking, listening to speakers. They, nothing was happening. There was no violence. There was no rioting. There was no looting. And then the police show up and demand that they leave. The violence begins when the police show up. I'm stressing that because that is a trend Weird. that still exists Weird. in the United States Weird. to this day. And this isn't even controversial. It's not like there was one side of the story that was like, it was violent and the police came to like squash the violence. No one, like literally 100% of people said it was completely peaceful until the police showed up. So the police show up and tell them to leave. And the police begin, this is, this is the story. The police begin marching on the crowd and someone throws a bomb at the police officers. That actually happens. Mm -hmm. No one knows who threw the bomb. Still to this day, no one knows who threw there? the bomb. What? Enforcement in any era, in yes. any nation, empire, colony, you name it, across thousands of years at this point, in a society based on hierarchy and exploitation, the enforcing class is not there to protect the will or popular sovereignty of the individual or of the people. Enforcement serves power. And that has always been the case in every society. Again, this isn't just picking on like Western civilization. We could find, you know, like ancient Chinese, Chinese dynasties under the same auspices. We can look at the caste system, whatever it might be, but that's what enforcement exists for. So this like more modern, like narrative of it being for anything else is, is at least historically speaking, untrue. And in this case, for sure, they weren't there to like create a safe environment for the people. They're there to disperse the crowd to protect right. 
the to protect industry, to protect this factory, to make sure the workers keep uh, their heads down and get to work. So someone throws a bomb at the police officers. It explodes and one police officer is killed as a result of the bomb itself. Then the police begin shooting into the crowd. They shoot into the crowd and reload and shoot into the crowd and reload and shoot into the crowd uh, over and over again. This uh, also there's an exchange of gunfire. It's not just one sided. The workers then uh, begin exchanging rounds with the police. And in the ensuing gunfire, seven police officers are killed and at least four of the civilians that had gathered in the square are killed. Um, we know for sure there were seven police officers. Numbers are fuzzy on how many of the civilians were actually killed. Uh, the official numbers are four, but most historians uh, claim that it was probably more than that because the workers were afraid to go get medical care because they were afraid they were going to be arrested. Right. So they like basically uh, healed each other. And then dozens and dozens on both sides were wounded. In fact, I read a quote from the police chief, uh, Chicago police chief at the time, and he said that uh, at least 70 officers were injured and he was 100% certain that far more of the civilians had been injured. But like I said, there's no numbers for that because they didn't go to the hospital. They were afraid that they would get arrested. So, so I want to stress this one more time. Let's just one more time. Like these people are exercising, in theory, their First Amendment right to like, yeah, to peacefully assemble, right? And then like get a redress for their grievances if they did want to appeal to their senator or their representative or whatever it may be that is protected in the First Amendment. And it is the police officers that show up and violate that right. Violate that First Amendment right. I want to stress that. Like, yep. who are these police officers serving in this example? Are they serving the people and their First Amendment constitutional right? Or are they serving, in this case, economic power? It's pretty obvious. This becomes an international event. It is The news coverage is across the globe. And the following legal proceedings of what happens after this massacre are like internationally covered by newspapers in cities all across the world. Um, it's not super important for the Labor Day aspect of this, but if you're curious, eight people were convicted of conspiracy. Um, the evidence is that one of those eight people may have potentially built a bomb, but none of them actually threw it. Seven were sentenced to death and one was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Um, one committed suicide rather than go to, uh, oh, suicide in jail rather than face uh, his death sentence. Um, the governor commuted two of the sentences to life in prison, so they didn't get the death penalty, they got life in prison. Uh, four of them were actually hanged, so they were executed. And then the, the next governor pardoned the remaining defendants and criticized the trial itself. So, I mean, these people were put to death for this and they didn't even, if you're familiar with the trial at all, it's absolute nonsense. Like the legal, the whole thing is nonsense. None of these people were guilty basically of anything, at least not proven in court, but four of them were executed. One committed suicide uh, and two of them had their sentences uh, commuted. So the legal proceedings and this event becomes internationally known. And to this day, the Haymarket Massacre is, is the inspiration and the origin for International Workers' Day, which is a global event held on May 1st, which we'll talk about in a few minutes and its relationship to Labor Day and why we don't really celebrate International Workers' Day in the United States. We're basically the only industrialized, quote unquote, country that doesn't celebrate uh, this holiday on May 1st. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. So that's the Haymarket Massacre and why it's important uh, sort of in this context of Labor Day. It'll become more important when we talk about May 1st in a few minutes. 
as a result of these radical efforts by organized labor to make gains, lower uh, hours in working hours in the day, fewer working days a week, the end of child labor, and so Some on. Conditions. Yes. Yeah. Some states start to pass legislation to make Labor Day a, an officially legally recognized state holiday. So as an example, all of these states did so in 1887. So that's one year uh, after the Haymarket Massacre. Uh, Oregon, Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York. And if you know anything about the history of labor, these are all states that had uh, were incredible hotbeds of labor activity. Interestingly, Colorado during this period uh, was one of like the central places where there was extensive amounts of labor activity because of all of the mining that was happening here. In fact, whatever, 45 minutes from us in Cripple Creek and so on, uh, it's incredibly well known for a worker struggle during this historical period. Uh, miners going and on strike massacre constantly. Massacre about two hours south of us, the Little yeah, Massacre we totally. were talking about at some point. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so these states... Oregon, Colorado, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York all passed legislation in 1887 to make Labor Day a state-recognized holiday. Okay, let's go fast forward a few years to the Pullman strike and its role in getting Labor Day recognized as a national holiday. But before, before we talk about the Pullman strike itself, we have to talk about company towns. So because the Pullman town is like the like archetypical example of a company town. So Pullman was obviously a wealthy industrialist, and he built this town specifically around the factory that he also built to house his workers. That sounds nice. However, all, it's just further exploitation it's because like in a company town, yeah, like Lowell that we've already talked about, in this town... The workers that worked for the factory lived in company housing and shopped at company stores, all owned and run by Pullman directly as an individual and the company. The reason this creates problems is when there is an economic downturn, which there was, which led to the strike, Pullman just cuts wages. He cuts the wages of all of his workers. But there is no corresponding reduction in rent or prices of the goods at the company store and so on. So all of a sudden, the workers are making far less wages, but all of their bills remain exactly the same. And they're all in complete control of the company because the company owns the town that they live in. So you, this level of exploitation is just like egregious, uh, just like we talked about in the Lowell example, for sure, the exact same thing. So this happens. There's an economic downturn, and Pullman lowers the wages of all of his workers. This leads to the Pullman strike. So the workers go on strike. It starts on May 11th, uh, 1894, and it lasts until July 20th, 1894. So on May 11th, all of the workers in the Pullman factory Oh, by the way, if you didn't know, the Pullman factory in this case, it was a manufacturer of luxury locomotive cars. So passenger cars that were like incredibly luxurious, um, which is just a whole other level to this dynamic of whatever, exploitation and class. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the American Railway Union, which is one of the uh, most organized union in the United States at this time, decides that they join this strike and they approve it against the Pullman company. Um, and the boycott shuts down most of the nation's railway traffic. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no other way to put that. It, th 
because of the solidarity of the workers in their unions, right? So the Pullman factory workers decide to go on strike and then nationwide, the rest of the, not all of them, I don't want to say, but the rest of the railway workers in solidarity also decide to go on strike. And the saying was at the time, they would not work on any train that was pulling a Pullman car. Yep. And so they basically shut down rail traffic uh, nationwide. Um, I don't have the number here, but I think I read that it was 250,000 workers across the United States in 27 different states. Love it. That's huge. You love to see it. And this is in 18, 1890s, right? We haven't seen a strike that big probably since then, right? Imagine if 250,000 workers across the United States went on strike today. It would be like Armageddon, right? We're too soft. We're too yeah. soft now. We've lost that spirit largely as a result of this narrative uh, being hidden. This is also, I just want to give like a cameo, I guess, to Eugene Debs. Uh, he's hugely important in the Pullman strike. He's the leader at the time. I think it's the American Locomotive Union, which is another, obviously, union of railroad workers. That's It's, it's massive and highly organized. He gets involved here, too and helps organize the Pullman strike. And if you look up like propaganda of the time from newspapers and stuff, they all are trying to paint it as if like it's this radical socialist leading these communist workers uh, against like blah, blah, blah. And they have, there's a really classic like image of Eugene Debs sitting on top of a bridge with a crown on that says King Debs. And the propaganda is like, he's sort of the like puppet master behind this whole, the whole thing is ridiculous as you might imagine. Now, this goes to the next level when the president gets involved. So this is Grover Cleveland. He gets involved under the auspices that the trains are unable to deliver mail because of the strike. And it's the federal government's job to ensure that the mail gets delivered as a federal uh, benefit. Wait, now a president is supporting delivery of the mail? Weird. Weird. How times have changed. <laughs> but let's be honest, he only did that so that he could shut down the strike, right? He sends federal troops and local law enforcement and members of the militia into Pullman to put an end to the strike. And as you might imagine, things turn violent. A total in this standoff, a total of 30 workers are killed by federal troops and local law enforcement and local militias. At the time. So they come in and violently put an end to the strike. However, uh, just before that happens, so it basically comes to an end July 20th, 1894. Just before that happens, on June 28th, 1894, President Grover Cleveland signs into law, making the first Monday in September of each year a national holiday known as Labor Day. Why would he have done that? That's a weird thing to do in the middle of a strike. He's just trying to ease tensions at this point. This is like one of those concessions, like one of these, again, just like completely inadequate concessions that power, whatever that power is, in this case, a modern day nation state. In the past, it might be an empire or again, a kingdom or something along those lines, but a completely inconsequential concession to basically get people to shut up. Like, look, we won this little thing. We won this one day a year one day a year where we don't have to work. I mean, never mind like all the days off you get in just about every other developed industrial first world, whatever stupid like adjective we want to use to describe nations, whatever. In the United States, it's that one, like that one day a year. Wow. Like, and we're all just supposed to be so grateful to the executive in this case for giving us like this just minor, super minor, inconsequential, inconsequential concession. 
we're uh, we're appealing for an eight hour workday at this point. Um, and you know, one day off of those ten hours spread across three hundred sixty five days does not nece- not even remotely equate to the same reduction in labor by any stretch of the imagination. But again, this is like, oh, thank you, thank you, nation state, thank you, president, thank you, government, for giving me this one day off. That's what this is about. It's 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 merely. What would we call this today? It's a little bit of theatrics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit of propaganda, and 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 it's a lot of just like again, trivial concession. Exactly right. Concession is the perfect word. And mind you, mind you, that was just back in the industrial era. If you look at a Labor Day today, it is not co- comprehensively celebrated. That Walmart is still open most of the time, yep. or that. Co- I almost said come and go like everyone knows what that is. It's a gas station or 7-Eleven. People might be more familiar. That's still open and there's mm-hmm. still somebody manning that that desk. That cl- There's a clerk there. What else is going to be still open? It's only usually like the white collar jobs or something yep. that are like, the, oh, the bankers get the day off. Exactly. Right? Like, For sure. Or yeah. unfortunately, we'll pick on ourselves. We'll get the day off as teachers. Mm-hmm. But no, not not that person again at, at the Burger King drive-thru because you just couldn't be bothered to even barbecue your own food that day. You, you like <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So in the midst of the most one of the most heated and one of the largest labor strikes in U.S. history, the government signs into law exactly what you said, this concession to give the laborers something, something that basically has no negative consequences for industry or for uh, politicians. The laborers had been working for recognition of this day for a really long time. And so he finally concedes this to try to put an end to the strike that's going on, the Pullman strike. Uh, And then he goes in a few days later with federal troops and puts an end to it uh, for sure, which is interesting. So that's how Labor Day becomes a federal holiday. It's a concession signed into law by Grover Cleveland. Interestingly, it doesn't end there, obviously. Most politicians at the time actually favored Labor Day because supporting it was really like not controversial. No one was really kind of against it. They could get on the side of the masses by saying that they too supported Labor Day as a holiday. So most politicians actually favored it. By this time also, like we're in the 1890s at this point, almost everyone is against child labor. Uh, The politicians, the laborers clearly. And so it's not soon after this that child labor becomes illegal as well. Now we get to the even more interesting part that I think is super interesting is that the capitalists, like the leaders of industry, actually supported Labor Day as well. So everyone supported it all for different reasons. The laborers wanted it so they could have a day that was theirs, that they would get off work, that they could uh, recognize their solidarity, be together uh, sort of in this community and use it to sort of recruit members to their unions and understand the power of uh, workers' actions and solidarity. Politicians wanted it so because it was just a good thing that they could say, like, hey, I support Labor Day. I support the masses. I'm a man of the people, right? right. All of this it's, nonsense. It's purely symbolic yeah. at this point. Not unlike current protests that are, like, starting to gain corporate sponsorship. That's – Yeah. Yeah. The capitalists supported it for an altogether different reason, and it was because as industry in America skyrocketed, the supply, obviously, of American-made goods – skyrocketed as well. That's what they're making very clearly. As the railway spreads across the United States and distribution of goods becomes pervasive in American society, the capitalists have sort of jumped the gun here with their efforts. They have created an economy with no consumers. It's very one-sided for a brief period in time. They all vehemently supported Labor Day because it would give 
the workers a day off from work so they could go consume. Yes. Because they were working so much, they, they didn't have time that. to buy things. Yeah. So all these things that they're making in the factories that the capitalists want to sell to make millions and millions of dollars, they're unable to do so to the scale that they want because all the workers don't even have time to go buy the stuff. Right. So they actually support Labor Day, and they want to turn it into sort of a consumerist holiday. You have the day off. You can go buy stuff. We see this today with Labor Day sales. Right. Every time you see a Labor Day sale advertised, know that it was the the capitalists initially supported Labor Day Furniture so that people could yeah. go buy things. Furniture stores, car dealerships. Like, think about those places that you see on the commercial, like, every every Labor Day. Like, mm -hmm. it's those types of places. Go buy things. Like, go buy, consume, end up, like, whatever, stuffing your face proverbially and, like, like metaphorically with whatever you can. Consume. And then get back to work on Tuesday because you're going to need to make money for what you just consumed. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, we'll move on because that, yeah, that well, one, it's also yeah. like it's kind of like also allowing a little bit of the steam out like Labor Day yep. is kind of that concession that again masters of industry will allow because if you allow just like this little bit of blowing off steam you're more than likely to stop any like large scale buildup of which they what just experienced with Pullman and Haymarket and so on and so forth so it's allowing like steam out a little bit it's of a release valve exactly yeah. what it is yeah and that's really the narrative of Labor Day in the United States is that it was a concession granted by politicians and industrialists to the workers to try to stop the radical labor organization that was happening in the United States at the time. OK, let's talk about who as the individual is credited being the founder of Labor Day. Many historians for a really long time credited a man by the name of Peter J. McGuire. He was a, the general secretary of the Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners. So that was uh, one of the largest unions at the time. And he was a delegate to the Central Labor Union of New York, which I just talked about. Um, the story goes that in May of 1882, he came forward and suggested this day that would be one day a year dedicated to the laboring classes. This story gets steamed because after President Cleveland signs it into law, he... Well, okay, I'm going to skip that part. There's, there's this part of this narrative is like, who gets the like souvenir pin that Cleveland used to write the, to sign like the executive order to turn this into law? Anyways, they talked to a man by the name of Samuel Gompers, which you don't know of him. He's like famous in this struggle of labor and history in the United States and stuff. He was the president and founder of the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. He gets interviewed by newspapers and so on about who the original founder, who should be credited with Labor Day. He says that it's Peter J. McGuire that came during this meeting and suggested Labor Day. However, more modern historians have uncovered that Peter J. McGuire and Gompers were actually really, really close friends. And they suggest that another man by the name of Matthew McGuire, no relation to Peter McGuire, actually at that meeting suggested it, but that Gompers intentionally said that it was Peter instead of Matthew because Matthew was a far more radical labor organizer and had taken part and led multiple strikes uh, across the country. And Gompers was much, much more liberal and conservative than uh, Matthew McGuire. And so he wanted to keep the AFL's name separate from any radical labor organizing. So he was motivated to say that it was Peter J. McGuire instead of Matthew McGuire who came up with this day. So much modern historians say that it was probably actually Matthew McGuire that didn't get the credit because he was so radical that even the AFL, the largest union at the time when it gets founded, uh, wants to separate itself 
from more radical labor organizing and be a more mainstream organization. So Gompers gives credit to someone else that was uh, so less radical. Gompers was more liberal and conservative, which in a modern day context, you wouldn't say both of those together. But right. at that time, what that meant, like, rather than being kind of like a radical, perhaps full-blown socialist like the other guy, he was mere, Gompers might mere, merely be what we would call a liberal. So in comparison yep. to McGuire, he's only conservative. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I'm not using the spectrum of today at all. Yeah, no, yeah. Not, not today's political spectrum 100% like we would say even like Matthew McGuire's efforts of organizing strikes weren't wasn't radical right like that's not radical but okay so that's sort of why who founded Labor Day gets skewed in history as if anyone knows who any of those two who those two men are anyways Um, but I want to now shift the conversation to May Day International's Workers Day the first International Socialist Congress in Paris in 1889 commemorates the Haymarket Massacre by calling May 1st International Workers' Day. And it becomes celebrated across the world. This is just an example. I like this because it shows the solidarity of workers worldwide that this gathering in Paris They knew what was going on in Chicago, and they chose May 1st as a result of the efforts that were going on in Chicago to have a new day that's international, that recognizes the power and the efforts and the exploitation of workers. And so they call this on May uh, 1st. Interesting. Now, Why don't we celebrate May 1st as International Workers' Day in the United States? Why do we celebrate Labor Day instead? Well, that's not unintentional. During the second Red Scare, politicians and elites started getting afraid that the workers might organize again, and they might recognize solidarity with international workers in other countries. So in 1955, Dwight D. Eisenhower proclaims that May 1st from then on out should be known as Loyalty Day. And it still is to this day. And this is the proclamation. Title 36 of the United States Code, Section 115, designates May 1st as Loyalty Day. The purpose, and I quote, Loyalty Day is a special day for the reaffirmation of loyalty to the United States and for the recognition of the heritage of American freedom. Section C says, the president is requested to issue a proclamation calling on the United States government officials to display the flag of the United States on all government buildings on Loyalty Day and inviting the people of the United States to observe Loyalty Day with appropriate ceremonies in schools and other suitable places. This is in 1955. Every president since then has made such a proclamation. Trump got a lot of heat for doing it this past May, and people were like, what, what, he made this New Day loyal today, this is egregious and fascist. It's been every president since Eisenhower has made the proclamation. In fact, there's a website I found when I was doing this research. You can look at every president's proclamation on loyalty day uh, every year. Um, so this isn't a Trump thing. This isn't like, a, like Eisenhower did this in the 50s, and every president since then has done this. And it purely is an effort to make sure that we could never have an International Workers' Day on May 1st because it's already Loyalty Day. To make sure that the workers of the United States never joined together with the workers of other countries and had a singular day where they could come together 
and recognize their efforts. So equal parts like indoctrination, so control over the production of knowledge, and then of course via propaganda through this manufactured holiday that is executively endorsed. So that's, check that. Forcing, forcing nationalism upon the population, right? To create like this more, uh, what we would call like American exceptionalism by separating like the United States from England or France or Mozambique or Vietnam or anywhere else that might have some sort of like connection to international workers, right? So this is what we're doing here. This is how you craft what Noam Chomsky calls like, this is how you manufacture consent. Like this is only one step of, of all of Chomsky's theory here, but like it's a very important step here. And no one asks the questions as to why these things exist. Like, I mean, Nick's right. People freaked out when the current executive did this, but like that's for all the things that guy does, like that was not like new or novel or anything. This goes back again to like that whole second Red Scare era, um, which was all about all about like disassociating oneself from anything that might be considered socialist even if that's something as simple as like a union that's fighting for your rights something as simple as like a healthcare situation right like which was i mean i, I don't want to get too far off topic but like this idea of a standardized like healthcare like system in the united states is that's not a new conversation either that started with the immediate predecessor to eisenhower harry truman and so basically certain people in the united states leaning definitely more to the left have been advocating for a standardized like state state run healthcare system well people it's people like eisenhower that are trying to like again associate that with some sort of socialism and then separate that into like the labor argument and then all of a sudden you have this like giant amalgamation of basically political ideologies that are becoming somewhat monoliths. And so each of the smaller issues within those um, become like partisan. Yeah. hundred percent. Like the, the fact that it's not just like, let's make a holiday, let's put some filler in there so that they can, the workers of the United States can't have a national worker day, but let's also make it so patriotic and nationalist like it's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's it's an obscenity. And, yeah, and I can't it is. Believe, you know, three hundred million people kind of fall for it every year, but it, they do. So. Yeah, we can't really talk about Labor Day without also talking about International Worker Day because yeah. in the U.S. we have Labor Day that literally exists in no other country. Every other country has International Workers Day that they celebrate on May first, and you can Google pictures of like I found a picture of uh, in Madrid, Spain, on May first. All the workers are out there in front of the capital with uh, banners and it's a huge, huge, massive parade. I saw pictures of France with thousands and thousands and thousands of workers on May 1st marching for International Workers Day. But in the US, we celebrate Labor Day instead. And we even celebrate like this weird manipulated version of Labor Day that's like half buying things on sale, half barbecuing with your friends, half, I'm like four halves now, but whatever, <laughs> half like it's the end of summer and like Labor Day, like all of these things and have like, the fact that it's supposed to be celebrating the power of workers and unions is lost. It's completely us. lost. Yeah, and it like, is just a demarcation yeah. point for like school calendars. Exactly. Or, or, or yeah, you're right for consumerism. Like the actual reason it exists is is recognition of labor, and and I think that's just lost, completely lost on a population that 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 re well honestly does not get the history you just provided us, and that's probably why. Yeah. So, like, if you really want to do something on Labor Day, celebrate it as a celebration of workers. If you really want to celebrate workers, celebrate don't, May 1st. Don't go buy shit. That's what For you want sure. to because you're going to exploit somebody's labor. Yeah. Yeah, don't get... Well, and, and like, you... But then the economist will be like, but then if you don't go buy things, then there's no... Reason no jobs. Work. Yeah. There's no jobs. No jobs. There's never any jobs. Like, oh, my God, there's no jobs. Like, Weird. Whatever. Yeah, before the industrial... <laughs> there was 99% unemployment before the industrial revolution. Weird. <laughs> 
nobody was working before industry. <laughs> they're just like, literally they sitting around. Capitalism like, gave everybody jobs. Like, like what were those hunter gatherers that yeah. laying on their ass? They Hundreds of thousands of years. Like someone's yeah. going to give us a job one of these days. Ancient Rome, yeah. you had no capital. You had no industry. <laughs> like, you, like everybody in Rome's just like laying around, like eating grapes and shit. Like, Someday there'll be a job drinking wine. And, like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, so if you really want to celebrate workers, celebrate May 1st, International Workers Day. And this isn't uncommon in the U.S. Actually, there are in cities like Chicago has one for sure. I saw there was one in Seattle. We even had one in Colorado Springs uh, last year. There are things going on on May 1st, uh, or at least near May 1st, around uh, International Workers Day. So seek those out if you really want to celebrate workers. Right. But what I suggest, and I'm going to just end with this. I won't even do the traditional outro. If you really want to celebrate Labor Day, I think you should ask yourself, if you have a job, are you unionized? If not, why not? Does a union exist for your profession? If not, why not? And further, explore the history of labor struggles through the United States and ask yourself, why now is union such a bad word? Because this is a result of absolutely manufactured narrative by the elites and the politicians over hundreds of years to make the workers think that unions do not benefit them. And unions themselves at times have been manipulated and taken over and conquered and corrupt people put into power to make sure that that's the case. Other countries don't have the same problem that we do with unions and the same perspective that we have as Americans on unions. And I challenge you to challenge that narrative go seek the history yourself i mean based on our viewership we're likely preaching to the choir anyway this isn't necessarily going to be novel information for what who we know who kind of watches our, our our podcast so we probably know we're preaching to the choir a little bit but if if you are one of those people that just kind of like stumbles upon us like yes a union ha unions have been made like into this like monolithic evil here in the united states that is or or at, at best it's just their time has passed i hear that argument mm -hmm. they were good for a little while but their time has passed right. but think about it this way we have weekends and that's not much like two days out of the week is not much yep. but even what little we have because of, of of unions there was no such thing as a weekend before the union yep. at least not in the industrial era there mm -hmm. Let's not get into other forms of labor systems. We only have a, in theory, 40-hour work week, although that's seriously going away mm -hmm. again, it seems like. But whatever. We only have a 40-hour week week because of unions. We have, like, health protection. OSHA exists because of, like, unions, right? Eight-hour work Workers' week. compensation exists because of unions. These very little things that, you, that we just take for granted, and we have somehow completely, like, disassociated them from the union— and somehow, like, I think in some cases, maybe workers even give credit to, like, their 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 exploiter for these things. Like, right. their actual employer, like, oh, thank you so much for the workers. Con Your employer's not doing that out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing so because at some point in history, unions made them. Or thank you for two days off per week. Like, that's so nice. Yeah. They're legally required to because of unions fought and died to make legislation where you were required to have two days off per week. Yeah. Like, anyway. That's a thing. Right. Preach to the choir. Outro. So now you know the history of Labor Day and the history, a little bit of the history of International Workers' Day, which takes place on May 1st. So I challenge you this Labor Day to sort of look up the real history of the struggle of labor in the United States. And I, we even mentioned them, I think, in the previous podcast. Um, workers' History is a podcast that is incredibly, incredibly good yep. on, I mean, all kinds of labor history. Uh, look those up. And look the podcasts up about workers' history and so on. There's so many of them that do so much more in-depth stuff than we do. 
so yeah, look those up. Uh, I also want to just briefly mention, like, I just want to stress again, how little we know about labor history in the United States. And I want to stress even further, there's a reason for that. That's very intentional. When the powers that be who craft our historical narrative are deciding what to include and what to subjugate, labor history very often falls by the wayside. So I encourage you to sort of unearth that on your own. So that's it. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.